Hey, this is Jeff Gannon, and you're listening to the Focus Compounding Podcast. This is the podcast where Andrew and I talk general investing concepts. To learn about specific stocks I like, go to focuscompoundinggazette.com. That's focuscompoundinggazette.com, and enter your email. Once you enter your email, you'll start getting one free 2,000-word stock write-up a week. Andrew and I also manage accounts for clients. To learn more about our managed accounts, email Andrew at info at focuscompounding.com or text or call Andrew at 469-207-5844. Now here's Andrew with your regularly scheduled podcast. Alrighty, we are back. How is everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. Andrew Kuhn, Focus Compounding, coming at you from... Dallas, Texas. Is it, do they call it the Sunshine State? No. <laughs> no, they don't. <laughs> they call it the Hot State. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. Jeff Gannon, introduce yourself. How are you doing? I'm Jeff Gannon. I'm doing good. How are you doing, Andrew? I'm doing great. We hope everybody is doing great. Hey, do you want to meet us? Do you want to... Are you interested in what we're doing? Want to learn a little bit more about our firm? Guess what? We are going to be in New York uh, the week of September 16th. So if that's something that you would, um, have an interest in learning a little bit more about, uh, prospective investors, and you want to, uh, potentially meet up with Jeff and myself, give me an email info at focuscompounding.com. Also, um, check out YouTube. We've been uploading a bunch of YouTube videos yep. and by we, I mean me, yep. uh, finally <laughs> have, um, the, the dark setting kind of, I think, fixed, right? Okay. It's not a dark video anymore. No, nope, looks good. Bought a nice new whiteboard. So uh, be sure to check that on YouTube at Focus Compounding. We're going to be doing three videos a week, pumping out a bunch of stuff on investing, um, you know, topics, pretty much whatever comes to our mind. If you want me to do a video on anything, um, send me it on Twitter or you can uh, email it to me. So um, today we're going to be going over some more questions that people have asked for us. Obviously, this is um, sort of the regular for us now because we get to mm-hmm. talk about what a lot of people are interested in, which is a lot of fun. Um, and the first one, and a lot, couple of people asked this actually, and I'm actually curious myself, if there's any upcoming spinoffs that you find interesting? Uh, probably not. So lately I haven't found spinoffs very interesting. Uh, the reason for that is because of how much debt that they've been loaded up with generally. So that's the main reason. That seems uh, to be happening a lot in the yeah. space. So there have been a lot of spinoffs, but they've been, been a lot of uh, with heavy debt, and some even with environmental liabilities and things like that. But I'd say compared to what it was not long ago, you have a lot more spinning off at junk or near junk and things like that. I was just talking about some. I was just talking to someone about that the other day. Um, but that's the big difference I've noticed in the last few years. Why do you think that's the case? Um, we're pretty late in a cycle, I think, for stocks. I mean, I think that that's probably a big part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, in general, I think you're seeing higher um, debt loads in terms of corporate debt in the U.S. Uh, definitely more so willingness to buy back stock from companies even when they have debt or to borrow and buy back. Yeah. Things like that that you didn't see just a few years ago. So it's just been a long time since the recession, I think. So you think like what? They, everyone's kind of like wearing rose-colored glasses? Or, yeah. Or, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you haven't had defaults because you haven't had a recession. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think people are pretty relaxed about that. We're at, we're at that point in the cycle. Yeah. If you want to learn about cycles, listen to my podcast I did with um, Vitaly okay. that we just actually uploaded this past Tuesday. We talked about the cycles. He wrote the book, um, the little book on sideways markets, and we spoke okay. about uh, cycles. And he actually said himself, too, that by pretty much any measure, first he said book value, but then he kind of went on to other measures, price of sales, pretty much everything that yeah. we are expensive um, you know, at that point in the cycle. And he's waiting for the swing back to uh, normal times. Yeah. yeah. So that's the main reason for spinoffs, uh, why they haven't been that interesting. There have been some really interesting sp- 
companies that have been spun off, but in terms of both the valuation put on the stock, which tended to be pretty high in the spinoffs, and definitely the amount of debt that they're carrying. Mostly, I have not found them that interesting. So you just haven't? And I continue. The upcoming ones, I don't see anything that I like right now. Got it. Cool. Um, how do you deal with information overload, especially you know when it comes to investing, right? All you're doing yeah. all day is reading and learning about different things, and you know, how do you deal with that? Uh, well, I'm focused on very few things, so that's a big part of it. Um, so a lot of stuff is irrelevant, and I kind of filter that out, I guess you could say. Um, we're not paying attention to day-to-day stock price moves and things like that. We're not usually paying attention to news, macroeconomic stuff. Um, that's a lot of what noise is. Um, in some cases, we might have all, just too much information about a stock. Yeah. I mean, what do you think about that? About like uh, if you ever a specific company, you ever find that there's too much? Yeah, I mean, I would I would say, but to sort of take a step back, yeah, that's right. And um, you know, how do you filter out new noise? Right? Mm-hmm. How do you deal with it? I think a lot of the ideas that we're looking at are businesses that we know pretty much off the bat that we're interested in, right? So right. actually, Jeff actually recently sent me over a video of Alice Schroeder, which we're going to dedicate a new podcast to this topic. Mm-hmm. And she was talking about Warren Buffett, how the first thing that he does is um, if he thinks there's any cat risk, he just says no, right. right? So the first thing he does when it comes to the investing process for him is if you know he thinks there's any sort of catastrophic risk or anything in regards to that, he just... Um, you know, says no and doesn't even think about the business again from that perspective. And she said how most people do it is they do all the work, you know, all the financial modeling, learn about all the business, and then they think about the risk. You right, know, that's at, true. In the end, so they spend all this brain power and all this noise. Yeah, and we don't do that. Yeah. And yeah, exactly. So that's my point. <laughs> yeah, I feel like we no, do the we same don't, thing. We don't do that at all. One we, of the first questions that we do in sort of our first yeah. checklist things is, okay, is this something that we'd even be interested in right. we, for the accounts? Is this something yeah. that we'd even would want to learn about? Is yeah. there any cat risk? You know, so I feel like for us, that kind of helps us deal with information overload because you're learning a lot more about the things that you're actually interested in or things yeah. that are more actionable. Yeah, the three things that we sort out stocks really fast for our, uh, is it overlooked or not? Um, is it predictable enough like that we, um, that there isn't cat risk basically what you're talking about. And, um, also to some extent, is it just way too expensive? I mean, we're willing to look at something that might be, you can't tell till you analyze that it's expensive, but something that's trading at a really absurd price, you know, 30 times peak earnings or something is unlikely to be something that we would, um, invest in. So those things sort out a large number of the stocks right away. Yeah. And I would think that, it just allows the brain power, I guess you could say, it doesn't take up the mm-hmm. capacity that you have. So you don't really have to deal with information overload. Yeah, and you can see like on the watch list that we put out and stuff that it's pretty, um, it's a small number of pretty simple industries generally and stuff. We don't have a big mix of some more complicated things on there. There are entire industries that aren't represented at all probably. Yeah, yeah, I think that's, uh, okay, cool. Um, this is an interesting question, and especially with running separate managed accounts, right? Where you're instead mm-hmm. of running just a f- one account or a fund or anything like that, you're doing you're dealing with a bunch of different vehicles yeah. and getting new clients and stuff. It says um, he wants to learn a little bit more about um, how you think about portfolio allocation and specifically averaging up or down or like rebalancing. That's a really good question, and as you know, we generally don't do it. Uh, compared to most people, I would say, not that we don't do it at all, but compared to most people, wouldn't you say that we buy a position at one price on average more? Yeah, that sure. In essence, we know how much we'd like to buy mm-hmm. and we try to buy it. Now, the prices we get sometimes are different in illiquid stocks and things like that because um, we may start buying something and then, and that's happened. Sometimes we don't, 
we do right now own 10 percent of something just because started to buy price didn't come down never came down we never got you know bought more of it didn't allocate more to it but um uh in we probably averaged down less than most value investors do you think mm -hmm. sure yeah yeah i think we averaged down less um i think the reason for that is when we, you make an idea to buy it's you don't kind of like nibble right, right. And, and try to buy it on the way down it's just you you buy it all at once and when you make the the, the decision to sell you kind of just sell it all at once as well yeah that's true um i think we don't average down probably for that reason also it tend to we'd rather sell the business we like the least more than the business that's the uh, most expensive probably mm -hmm. a little bit more whereas some value investors might be that if a stock declines they like it a lot more than maybe we do i think i've said before that i think compared to most value investors i'm definitely not hesitant to sell at a loss like at, at even a small loss you know some people want to get back to even in a sense or yeah. whatever you know mm -hmm. and that is irrelevant to me really i don't care about the um, what we show in terms of on that position. Uh, but we also don't average up much, I would say. I can't think of lots of cases where we've a um, allocated more to a position once it's gone up. But a real big reason for that is probably that we start with a large um, position. Yeah. So it's not so much that I would be really against averaging up as much as I probably don't want to overweight something even more. You know, Because if it starts going up more than other stocks, you're already overweighting it. Mm -hmm. So um, we... We'll trim back sometimes if we think that it gets really out of hand or something. That's mm -hmm. something that we do think about. Like if a stock is doubled while others haven't, you know? Yeah. Yeah. How do you go about appraisal? And can you walk through an example of an appraisal? Um, so I go through totally different appraisal depending on the stock. There's That's no true. There's no one way of uh, doing it. Depends on the stock. Uh, the easiest ones are free cash flow. So the easiest ones would be um, what form of free cash flow? Because uh, the crazy right. part about finance and investing, yeah. is there's a bunch of different <laughs> definitions for right. like the same thing, right? There's like unlevered free cash flow, levered free cash flow, no pet. Uh, well, yes, a lot of companies use EBITDA minus capex. Yeah, right. Uh -huh. Then there's so, cash flow from operations, right. uh, Minus capex or uh, no pet. I mean, like right. there's literally there's so many different definitions that people use. Yes. So um, what I actually use is what I think is the normal free cash flow from the actual business operations. Uh, in a normal year. Um, and n for most stocks, it will be adjusted for the enterprise value. So um, free cash flow relative to enterprise value, basically. So like the free cash flow yield? Yeah, on the, the free cash value? flow yield on the enterprise value, basically. Um, however, for some companies, that won't be true if they hold a lot of cash and other things like that. For most of the things we have, it would be. They don't have a lot of net cash or net debt. Um, but it depends. Uh, so um, I know that I did a write-up for Focus Compounding where I talked about uh, a Timberland company, and my appraisal was based on what I thought the Timberland was likely worth and some things like that. And then an actual, they got an appraisal of it by somebody. Yeah. So that's a logical method to use as a sales comparison approach. What are other, uh, the same number of acres selling for and other things. Uh, as of the time this podcast will be up, I will have done a cement company. And part of the thing I'll be discussing, not how I actually appraise it, will be um, the value an acquirer would put on it, the book value, and the value that it, uh, the replacement value or the replacement cost. Um, so I'll use all of those. Uh, but that's not how I appraise it in terms of myself for buying it. What matters to me is the return that I expect to get from it. And so it's 
always the method that I use is at what price will this stock, if held from now till as far as I can see out in the future, uh, have the same return as the S&P 500? That's always the method I really use. Mm-hmm. So you can use different approaches with sales, with assets, which with whatever you use, um, but you have to figure that out. So let's dig deep on that. Yeah. Right. So, okay. So walk us through that process. Okay. So let's say I have a cement company and I think it will return somewhere between eight and 12% on equity. Meaning in my case, I'm talking about free cash flow. So the true business fundamentals right. is going to return. Yeah. That, and yes. it's super cyclical. So the free cash flow especially would be very cyclical, but you could, Estimate out over a full cycle and stuff. It's not that hard. Yeah. Um, so you would take free cash flow and divide it by the probably the tangible equity. Okay. In this case, they don't they haven't acquired things, so they don't have goodwill and stuff. But for other companies, they might have a lot of goodwill. So um, then you ask, well, what price am I paying relative to book value in, in this case? So let's say I think it's going to return eight to twelve percent. Well, I'd like a, I I might think the S and P five hundred will return eight to twelve percent. You know, or maybe I think less. Uh, but that's enough of a range that you would think, oh, I should buy it around book value. Maybe I shouldn't buy it at one and a half times book value or something like that. So the actual way of doing uh, the math would be if you think, um, let's say you think 12%, right? And then let's say you think the S&P 500 will return 10% a year, which I don't, but it helps with the math here. Um, then you would pay 1.2 times book value, but not more than that. Yeah. Now, people who are very uh, good at figuring this out, we'll figure out that actually it depends on the holding period that you have. So if you paid that high a price, that wouldn't necessarily be a problem if you had a short holding period, but actually if you have a very long holding period, if you have a return on equity lower than the market, um, it will you'll underperform more and more over time. If you have a return on equity above the market, it matters less that you pay too high a price. So one problem with that approach is that theoretically, for companies with have very high returns and, on equity, and you're speaking of return on equity from the business compare. So if you think the return on equity is ten to twelve percent, right? You're comparing that right. to the long term return of the S and P five hundred. Yes, and here's the problem that comes up with that. So if the S and P five hundred has a return expectation of eight yeah. percent, and you have a return expectation of twelve percent return on equity of twelve percent in this, that suggests you should pay a higher price to book. But actually, if your time horizon is long enough, it will suggest a surprisingly high price to book is what you should pay. Mm-hmm. I don't really look at it that way. I like to look for like 10 years or something. And when you're saying return on equity, yeah. again, getting back to there's a ton of different definitions. Yeah, I, would use I cash. mean, I know the way you do it. Cash. You use free cash flow. Yeah. But other people may use like net income or some form of EBITDA or something like that. But you use true cash, the true cash that the business generates. Generally, yes. Got it. But there are cases where it would be different yeah. because let's say um, – you think there could be a change in ownership. So you want to look at what it would be to someone else buying it. Mm-hmm. Or you think they could close one thing down and keep another thing open or you know any of those sorts of things. So it, it can happen that way where it, like EBITDA or something like that would matter more. I also don't think that statistically there usually is that big a difference between using, say, free cash flow and using EBITDA yeah. or EBIT. Mm-hmm. Um, and you could be fooling yourself. You should look at all those numbers, but I see investors a lot of times fooling themselves because they say how cheap it is on EBITDA, and when they mention that, the company produces no free cash flow. Sure. You know what I mean? Yeah. They don't ever. They don't talk about free cash flow um, in cases where the free cash flow is really low or something like that. They like to talk about the EBITDA. So it depends, and it's and um, you do adjust for other things, tax rates and things like that. I mentioned cement companies. Cement companies can have a much lower tax rate than other uh, sorts of businesses. So you want to adjust for that kind of thing too. Because of the depreciation and stuff. Yeah. Mostly depreciation and depletion, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Cool. No, I thought, uh, I think that's... A well, good we do it all the time, so how do you think we normally appraise things? I mean, we oh, do wait, it constantly. So, yeah, I mean, I would say, A, we think about it in terms of five five years usually, right? Okay. Where a private buyer would pay for a business, yeah. typically five what years. What they would pay, yeah. But what we do differently than most people is it's always based on a free cash flow number. Yeah. I feel like a lot of people, they use EBITDA because a lot of the okay. companies that they're researching, they may not generate free cash flow, so that's it's like true. almost like they're using different metrics to almost like justify... Um, the purchase, right? It's like EBITDA. Right. It's like it always shows a higher form of cash flow. And yeah, for people true. that aren't watching us on YouTube, I'm using air quotes. Right? <laughs> okay. So yeah, you know, so that's why people use EBITDA as opposed to free cash flow, right? Because it always looks cheaper on an EBITDA basis right. than it does on an actual like free cash flow basis. Yeah. You know? But the way that we do it is, um, it's always you know free cash flow. But we think about it also. Okay. So if you think the stock is, if you could buy it today for $10 and then you think it's actually probably worth in five years, I don't know, 20 and $25. Mm -hmm. We think about it almost, um, where we do like a, a eternal, like an IRR calculation right, on that yeah. to see what we can't, what we think we could potentially earn on it. Right. And then you, you compare that to the SP 500. Yeah. You know, um, or there's other ways, you know, we think about it, um, you know, what the actual business will earn. So, so to your point earlier, you think the return on equity could be anywhere from 10 to 12%. Right. Um, so you're getting that today. And if you think it could grow, right, then that could mm -hmm. be an interesting investment. If you, especially if you think the SP 500 is probably going to do only like eight to 10%. Yeah. But I would say what we do differently than most people is a lot of it's always um, in the form of opportunity costs to the SP 500. Yeah, I know a lot of people yeah. say that, right? They say that, but mm -hmm. it, you know, then you look at maybe their, their research or their blog posts and they don't really, do it like that. Everything we do is based on like uh, an IRR, and then we always compare that to the SP 500. Yeah, you know, absolutely. What we think the long term return could be plus dividends, you know? Sure, because otherwise you could just, I mean, you could buy the SP 500, you could throw darts at a, a list of stocks, you know, whatever. I mean, there, there has to be a reason why you would buy that stock to have a return that's higher than other things yeah. to, to come up with that intrinsic value. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no. And how do you think? I mean, do you think, what do you think other people do that we don't when it comes to the way that they value businesses and their appraisal approach? And what do you think is wrong about it that they, a lot of people do? Um, well, some things they do are fine. So, for instance, we focus on companies that have free cash flow usually. There's nothing wrong with having earnings come in the form of uh, more and more growth and reinvesting it all. If you have high rates of return, that's great. Eventually, one day, you'll have free cash flow. Yeah. So, there's nothing wrong with EBITDA if EBITDA is growing a lot and whatever that way. Um, but sometimes what they're doing is it's not about growth is that a lot of that is for capex needs and things like that um and also working capital needs a lot of times they're not really counting the increases in inventory and receivables and, and things like that but i'd say what most people do is they look out maybe three years or something they assume what the improvements could be in the company and then they put a multiple on it so like they're just projecting out sales yeah and then they margins find like some sort of margin and yep. they put a multiple on that yeah that's what i think most people are doing yeah and why do you think that's incorrect um, well, uh, if one, uh, and this is something Alex Schroeder talked about with Buffett, uh, Buffett doesn't really model things out. And I'm going to yeah. be honest, I don't really model things out. Um, sometimes I talk about it as if I do with, with things, um, uh, for the future saying that, you know, in three to five years, I think that it could be earning whatever. But usually what I'm talking about is like a return to normal, sure. right? So even with, I talked about like Frost or something, I just meant with a higher Fed funds rate, it would be earning this. Not that I was projecting so much uh, growth in whatever and, and differences in margins and things. Certainly we don't project things about cost cuts and things like that. Yeah. Uh -huh. um, the other thing is that's tricky is that in like bear markets and stuff, the multiple you put on will be too low. And in bull markets, it'll be too high. The truth is that like, 
a few years from now, multiples are going to be more different than you probably think. Uh, we'll see, but that tends to be true. So it's unlikely that multiples in a few years will be that close to what you're using now. Um, now returns in the S&P 500 could be hard to predict too, but we use a range to, to try to come up with it. Um, I use long-term averages for things. That's what we use for the S&P 500. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if I was really estimating what I thought the return in the S&P 500 going forward is now, it would be a much lower number than the number we use as our opportunity cost. We're kind of conservative that way. We use, you could say we use a higher discount rate. Um, when I see uh, people using EBITDA multiples, they're basically, they'll use like private equity bought something this year in the same industry. That's the multiple they use, right? I mean, you saw like people, we bought but, NACO. Right? Yeah. Go I ahead. was going to say, do you, is that an unfair way to do it? Because I no, mean, if everything example, works out the way they said, yeah, it but I'm works. saying like if a private equity company, they're probably going to approach that company different than, um, like Warren Buffett buying a company, right? Because the private equity company, what are they going to do? They're right, it's absolutely true. It the stuff, problem yeah. I see with that is if you do that in 2006 or 2007, let's say, um, you would end up thinking the multiple would be very high. And then when you try to exit in 2008 or 2009, the multiple is actually extremely low. Sure. And this happens a lot. You're going to constantly be drawn to um, make predictions about the future that are too... Um, optimistic. I, I don't see, usually, here's what I almost never see is someone say, here's my model. The company will deteriorate for the next three years and multiples paid in this industry will decline. Yeah, yeah, sure. But that chance is probably the same as the reverse. Of yeah, that. sure. Yeah. You know, they don't say, oh, this is a hot industry right now. More competition will come in. Therefore, I predict that there'll be cost pressures here or that, you know, revenues will decline or whatever. And I predict that private equity and people like that will be willing to pay less for this in a few years. That's not usually what they predict. So that's the problem. You're, you're looking out like you're looking out three years or something, but really you're using all the information that you have right now today. I use a lot more historical information. Um, that is a big difference. I don't project out the future much, right? And we do use a lot of historical data. Which bakes into the margin of safety. Obviously, yeah. right? if you're just using historical. Well, we've talked about that before in terms of I always talk about, well, what's the standard deviation? And to remind you that, you know, you're going to have two standard deviations. You have to assume two standard deviations to the downside is what you're going to experience in something like margins. And what could that look like? Yeah. So if you have a company that has a 20% margin, which people talk about, they have a 20% EBITDA margin. Okay. We don't use EBITDA, but they may. So we'll say 20% EBITDA margin and 5% standard deviation in the margin in the past. You have to assume that while you own the stock, it's going to have an EBITDA margin of 10%. Mm -hmm. Two standard deviations is not a very unusual um, move for a stock, uh, for a company. Um, so, you know, one happens all the time, constantly. So, and in worst case scenarios, what you really are preparing for in things you don't expect to have this happen to and, you know, once in a generation type things, we're talking more like, it could be four standard deviations. Yeah. But, um, but you just... Just in terms of probabilities, two standard deviations are going to be happening all the time. And yet I don't see people saying, well, the EBITDA is 20% now. There's a good chance it'll be – the EBITDA is 20% now. There's a good chance it'll be 10% in a few years. But there often is a good chance it'll be 10%. There's a good chance it could be 30% too. So then when you think about handicapping that, right, if it still makes mm -hmm. sense that a two standard deviation move, that's yeah. when it could be an interesting situation, right? Yeah. I mean, that's and the way that also, you do think about it, right? When you're talking about using a bunch of historical records as opposed to yeah. forecasting, that's the way that we think about it. Right, I mean, it's kind of like the okay, so mm. the bear case, the worst case, and if it all still or the bull and the like, you know, what I'm saying the bull and the bear case, and if it still right. makes sense on it, then maybe that's you know interesting to pursue. Yeah, and all the time we use long term averages um, in terms of like we're not 
Um, the first thing I do, and every yeah. single when we look at a company, and, and this is what you have me do, is go back and get um, the longer, the longest record of the sales, the EBIT, yeah. the, um, and pretty much like net income or some form mm-hmm. of free cash flow, and then um, take the margins of that, and then we always take the standard deviation of it, the coefficient variation, the mean, right. the um, the average, yeah, and the we minimum, the yeah. minimum, the maximum, and we record what years the minimum and maximum were in, yeah, and that's something I think is a helpful reminder to people that you know to say okay but what if they have another year like 2006 or uh if that was the maximum in that industry yeah or you know um for frost the early 90s uh late 80s early 90s was terrible and and what that would be like and you can say okay well they'll never hit the minimum again because that was a once in a lifetime thing i don't think people should be going around thinking well the, the decline in this housing stock will be the same as it was um you know in the housing bus sure but I, you know, you can look at the past recessions and stuff and assume, yes, next time there's a recession, it'll look like the past recessions that this, um, that this stock had in terms of margins and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like, for instance, when you're doing that calculation, here's one of the problems with doing the like, okay, let's model out three years. Okay. Will we have a recession in three years or not? Do you know? I don't know. Yeah. (laughs) But they're putting a 0% chance of that into their model. Sure. Of course. Because usually even when they do the bear, um, the the base, base they they don't, um, they don't include the bear case is a global recession. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the bull case is that there's a big boom in this industry or whatever, even though those are probably the realities, they're modeling a much more normal sort of situation. Just saying for this company, this is a good outcome, a bad outcome, uh, you know, in, in, in the middle outcome. You know, if they get the right weights and everything to it, I think it's absolutely right what they're doing. It's sort of like a DCF. I say all the time that DCFs are correct, but I don't know how to do it in a way that I have confidence sure, in. Yeah. And I don't know how to do those models that people are doing um, for those businesses. Yeah. But that's what most people – I don't know if it's what most people are doing, but a lot of financial analysis is done that way. A lot of things for inside companies is done that way in terms of modeling out a few years, often like three years or something, and looking at what margins and things they expect. But usually what it really is doing is coming in with some – uh, assumption from the beginning about like the economic situation or something like that. So it'll assume the model assumes that there's not a recession or the model assumes that there's not a big increase in the number of competitors coming into the industry or something like that. You know, it makes those assumptions. Now it could make them in the other direction, you know, and assume that things don't recover as quickly or whatever. But usually if you look at those models, they're assuming a pretty narrow range of possible outcomes that you have to do with things of an assumptions uh, like, for instance, like saying that there's not a recession. Mm-hmm. Most of those that you see, if you just go and look at write-ups right now, they, the model, and this is the model all the time, yeah. uh, until you're actually in a recession, then maybe they might model a recession. <laughs> but absent that, they will not, mo- the models actually don't include what would really happen in a recession in most of those industries. And of course, I'm not saying that you need to do that because I don't do that. I don't assume that uh, the worst earnings they have are normal. I'm just looking for what's normal. I'm never saying, well, you should only pay a certain multiple of the earnings you'd have in a recession. Mm. You know, I'm saying over time, what's a normal average. But I think it's easier to predict what a long-term average over a cycle has been or something than to predict what something will be in a few years. Cool. I thought uh, that was great. (laughs) Okay. You you earned your paycheck today. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with us here today. If you're not following me on Twitter, be sure to do that at Focused Compound. And be sure to follow us on YouTube as well. We are pumping out three videos a week. Like I said in the beginning of the podcast, if you want to um, meet up with Jeffrey and myself, we're going to be in New York the week of September 16th for Prospective Investors. Mm -hmm. Uh, So lots of good things going on. So if that's something you'll be interested in, definitely reach out. I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in. Leave us a rating and review, and we'll see you in the next podcast. Take care. 
Hey, this is Jeff Gannon, and that was the Focus Compounding Podcast, the podcast where Andrew and I talk general investing concepts. To learn about specific stocks I like, go to focuscompoundinggazette.com. That's focuscompoundinggazette.com, and enter your